Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years, here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To 53342. New York, call the 24 7 Hope Line at 1 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y 467369. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Woke Bros. Of course, I'm your co-host, Big Waz. Uh, my man Nando Vila is out this week. He's on a work assignment in Miami. Um, but we got a very special, 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 special guest. Um, to me, he's the most amazing Haitian in media today, period. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> period. Really? Period. Uh, my man of this is revolution. Um, this is revolution podcast. Pascal Robert, what's popping, my boy? What's the no boy? My man, my Haitian brother. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm so happy to have you on. You know, obviously, I'm a fan of what you guys do at This Is Revolution, and it dawned on me that you haven't been on since January when we had you break down for the folks in them. You had the- me do 200 years of Haitian history. <laughs> Yes, but yo, when I tell you the response to that episode was so incredible, people loved it. And so um, I'm like, damn, it's been three months since we had Pascal on it. We don't really do guests like that, to be honest, on the show. But we have our people, our core people that we really fuck with. So I wanted to have you on um, today for sure. And, you know, the main reason, man, because... I've been checking out what you and Jason are doing at This Is Revolution a lot lately. And a lot of your shows recently have focused on <clears throat> the black elites. Um, just sort of the history of their politics and how it's evolved over time when it comes to the black political class. 
um, the history and the origins of ideologies like <clears throat> black, quote unquote, black nationalism, and just how they function within the current paradigm of our system here in America specifically, right? And, you know, they function similarly all throughout the diaspora when you really think about it in their collaborative nature with, you know, the levels of levers of power of capital. But here in America, I feel like you have a lot of very astute observations about how these people operate and you know i think the most um where i want to start today especially as it pertains to black nationalism and black cultural nationalism is that it's all over the place today in ways that like i wasn't really noticing right like you notice you notice a shift and then you don't really know what's happening but it's all of a piece i'll give you an example <clears throat> sorry i don't know why i just ate some peanuts and some of it is Going in my throat, so please excuse me. I'll give you an example of I remember when the natural hair thing with black women my age started happening. You know, big chop, big this, blah, 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 blah. And it's all tied back to some level of black cultural nationalism. Just this idea that like we don't need to perm our hair, we can wear our hair like we're supposed to. And like it's to me, that's like positive. That's, you know, that's good thing. But again, like, I'm not putting the pieces together of where it is. Because, again, like, all of these women that I was noticing too, Pascal, are from the black professional class. They're highly educated college women, people who are in the workplace, people who do see liberation for black people being tied to how they're allowed to wear their hair at work um, rather than just, you know, the material needs of, like, people in like horribly poor towns in Mississippi, right? Like it's rare that you see a lot of this stuff come out of the black sort of underclass for lack of a better word. Um, I just want you to talk about some of how you receive a lot of this. And again, that's not to say that shit like good hair and like the Chris Rock doc, which we're not even going to get into the Chris Rock, Will Smith and all of that shit. But like, it's hard not to see all of that as of a piece, right? Like black cultural nas nationalism sort of emanating from the black upper classes, if you will. Well, first of all, I would like to uh, thank you for inviting me on your show, Wozni. Uh, appreciate all that you do. You know, we I've been on your show one time before, but we've been developing a fast uh, friendship and camaraderie. Of course. Haitian Americans from Jamaica, Queens, the whole, yes. the whole nine very similar understanding of the dynamics, but I'm going to be uh, direct in addressing your point. One thing that um, I try to do in discussing black politics is that I was very fortunate, and I will, and I will um, say this, to be mentored in my political development and understanding about black politics by Bruce Dixon and Glenn Ford, who were the mm -hmm. creators of Black Agenda Report. Both of them former Black Panther Party members. Bruce mm. Dixon was a member of the Chicago Black Panther Parties uh, under Fred Hampton and was actually in charge of political education. So I spent literally almost 10 years, uh, sometimes almost daily per week, getting polit political education, getting book suggestions, being exposed to scholarship about Black American political history from someone who literally his job as a Panther was to do political education and mm. also from Glenn Ford, who was probably the most 
salient radical black journalists we may have ever had in this country. You know, rest in peace to both of those gentlemen. And one of the things that was a consequence of my affiliation with them is that I began to do a deep dish dive into the scholarship, literature, and intellectual origins of much of Black political thought and get exposed to uh, scholars of Black political thought and Black politics who had a critical understanding from a very left radical perspective of how ideologies, concepts, theories, beliefs Mm. that were sacred to Black people were actually helping Black people be facilitated as pawns Mm. by the ruling class (laughs) and how these theories, even though they organically came out of Black intellectual spaces, really helped facilitate a concept that I actually discussed on This Is Revolution podcast called a politics of containment. What a politics of containment basically means is that when you believe that you are collectively one community that only needs a handful of voices to represent you undemocratically, that means that basically the ruling class or the political establishment can contain you in one garbage bag and dispose of you as one. Because no individuals have rights to to decide their own personal uh, politics based on the material position. So in studying the the historical and intellectual origins of Black political thought and Black ideological thought, and understand something, as critical as I am, and I'm very critical of many of these tendencies, I approach Black intellectual traditions from a position of respect in this way. These are ideas that are coming from people that have been profoundly marginalized, attacked, brutalized, and extracted for their labor without compensation throughout history, okay? So as much as I am critical of some of the ideas that they try to come up to rationalize methodologies of liberation, I am well aware that even though mo- the most faulty ideas are coming up out of a paradigm of extreme oppression and brutality. Mm. Okay? So I say that because as critical as I am of these things, I don't want it to be reduced to oh, Pascal's always making fun of black people. No, no. No. And, and, and see, that I'm glad you framed it that way because a lot of times, and again, I talked about the natural hair thing only because it's like so prevalent on social media. It like, again, like a pop cultural damn near phenomenon in the Chris Rock docking. That's not to say that it's not important that people get to wear the fucking hairstyles that no, they want. I'm not making an accusation of you at all. I'm, not yeah. saying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make people understand that I come through these criticisms not because I think black thought is is corny or funny. It's something to be picked at. <laughs> I come from these ideas because, number one, I actually grew up as a black nationalist. I was mm. a black nationalist well up until my 20s, my, wow. 30, you know, my early 30s. All right. Number two, I was a very hardcore Haitian cultural nationalist, Haitian nationalist for a long time. All right. So I come from a family that was my, my, my father's family. My father was a very, very pro-black, very heavily influenced by black, black nationalist thought and Haitian nationalism, big time. So I'm not someone who was alien to people being influenced by people whose lives were dedicated to these ideas, right? So I'm not talking this pulling things out of my 
my behind here. So to answer your question, my biggest criticism of these ideas is twofold. One, black intellectual theorization, thought, political thought, ideological thought is almost always the province or or the domain of black elites. Not necessarily university pedigreed elites or some black leadership cadre. For example, black nationalism in the United States, which really comes out of a reaction to the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, is is an ideology created by free people of color. These guys weren't even slaves. (laughs) <laughs> These guys weren't even slaves. Okay? So you have a political ideology developed by almost exclusively men who literally are not even living the way that over 85% of black people are living. That becomes almost the normative way a century later that black people are still viewing themselves. Right. And I find, because one of the things I find fascinating, right, whenever I make my challenges to these ideas that, by by the way, this is not an exaggeration, people have gotten killed over these debates, Mm. assassinated. I always find it interesting that when I make some of my most harsh criticisms, and I send them to all kinds of nationalists, I get (laughs) no, no clap back. Zero. Zero. Because the the points I'm trying to make, I'm not saying because I'm brilliant, because it's because they're logical facts that no one can deny. Yes. Because the because unfortunately, black folk and not only black American folk, black folk in general, but particularly more so black American folk, are unwilling to confront the role of class amongst themselves and how it creates an obstacle to liberation and effective politics, it is very, very delicate for Black people to admit that actions of people amongst themselves and ideas that they hold sacred are helping facilitate their oppression. You know, you know what's interesting about, I want to tap back in with what you said about, you know, the, the Black liberation ideology comes out of, you know, uh, you know, theory and thought from people who weren't even slaves at the time. I remember I read a book. (laughs) I read a book by, uh, what's this brother's name? Um, David Brian Davis, right? It was called um, The Problem with Slavery in the Age of Emancipation. And he talked about all the shit they tried before this. Like there was this idea that people would go back to Liberia, right? And people went back to Liberia. And those motherfuckers came back and said, nah. That's not the answer. Like the white people in America was like, fuck it, let them go back. Fuck, like this shit is outmoded. It ain't gonna work. It's gonna lead to problems for all of us. And a lot of these black intellectuals and these black elites essentially at the time were like, well, we're gonna take our asses back to Africa. They found the Africans in Liberia had no culture in common with Bro, them. they enslaved them. <laughs> they had no common cause. It was like, nah, that's not that's not gonna be it. So it's just it's just interesting that you would say that it's like, you know, these people who sort of get to set the agenda for all black people rarely ever come from the black people who need the most shit, period. Correct. 
And that so the first major critique I have of these theories and ideas is that number one, they almost are always formed by elites, right? Mm-hmm. Number two, they are all premised on something that is traditionally known as vindicationism. I wrote a piece called The Politics of Redemption, and it talks about this. What is vindicationism? What is the politics of redemption? Vindicationism or racial vindicationism is the theory or the concept that black people must prove their capacity to white people and themselves to show we can have businesses, we can govern ourselves, we can brush our teeth and and, and, and balance our checkbooks. Now you must respect us because we have shown you. You can look at black nationalism, you can look at black cultural nationalism, you can look at the talented... This strain of rationale Carter G. Woodson, you find it in almost all. You find it in early Haitian scholarship. And by nature, it's a we're probably not good enough and we need to prove ourselves it's line of thinking. It's, first of all, part of the problem of black intellectual thought is that it's always reacting to whiteness. Mm. It's always reacting if you have a political ideology or philosophy of liberation that's always reacting, how do you develop a forward-thinking, more kind of universal ideology of emancipation if you're reacting to something that you're looking you're looking, looking over your shoulder at? Right. <laughs> and, you know, and one of my favorite things about what you and the, the conversation that you and Jason had that I thought was fascinating, you brought up two, two cats that I think people wouldn't realize were so closely aligned on the surface of their reputations. One time you guys were talking about Clarence Thomas and his background as a black liberation ideologue, as well as the minister Farrakhan, also a black liber like probably most known for black liberation ideology then almost man any black figure of the last like 30 40 years pretty much um the minister farrakhan and i think what what i loved about how you guys framed it is this this constant through line that black liberation often just leads to the most reactionary conservative politics imaginable well what we talk what we were, what we were talking about was particularly black nationalism and First of all, there's several good books. I have a whole list of books here on black nationalism. For me, the first book, you want to get a very good understanding of the ideological foundations of black nationalism is a book called The Golden Age of Black Nationalism by a man named Wilson Jeremiah Moses. It's a very good book and explains the intellectual foundations of black nationalism. I have a whole compendium of books here on black nationalism. And one of the things that you realize is that... Jeremiah Moses explains it, is that classical black nationalism, and there are, let's make this clear, there are multiple forms of black nationalism. There's classical black nationalism, petite bourgeois black nationalism, revolutionary black nationalism, cultural black nationalism. We will explain what all of them are throughout the show. Classical black nationalism, kind of black man, do it yourself. Don't depend Mm -hmm. on the government. Pick up, you know, put put down your bucket. Nation of Islam. Yes, sir. Marcus Garvey, Nation of Islam, yep. all of the 
Many people think that the politics of that classical black national nationalism is something revolutionary, radical, or uh, transformative, liberal. Yeah, but classical black nationalism is conservative as hell. It's pro-capitalist, heavily rooted in respectability politics, heavily rooted in denying black people the same use of government that white liberals use to elevate themselves with the New Deal. White conservatives use too. With government subsidies and all kinds of things. And this belief that you can't depend on the government, you can't trust and depend on the white man, you got to do it your own black man, pick it up, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And you got, you know, all of this. And hold on, before you go on, I need people to understand why what you're saying is so important because I think what most people would agree is why capitalism throughout the history of this country specifically has been able to thrive is that traditionally after some type of crisis or some type of crash or some type of whatever, they could always give people land for cheap. <laughs> like the government would be like, look, here's this parcel of land. White people, we going to give you some shit. Appease you. Like here, you have a piece of this land that you Act. own. Homestead, Homestead Act. And they would just keep going and going. Now we don't really have any much more, much more land to give away to folks. But that's what constantly was happening. And it was white people getting shit from the government. Period. So this idea that like black man, you shouldn't rely on the government. It's 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 ridiculous. No, it's absurd. Well, it's absurd because it's based on ridiculous notions of how other ethnic groups work. For example, yeah. one of the common tropes that you hear amongst black nationalists, particularly classical, classical black nationalists, look at the other ethnic groups. Look at the Jews. They look obsessed the with the Jews. They were all they obsessed with the Jews. Was, you know, I'm reading a really great book uh, called The Ethnic Myth. You know, man, it collapses all of that garbage so effectively. For example, I had this moron. It was a Haitian moron, as a matter of fact. Every time <laughs> I talk about the economic problems that black people have had to deal with in the 20th century, this imbecile will be like, what about the Jews? How come the Jews went? And I was like, you dumb bastard. I said, number one, Jews are white. In the, in the context of America, they're not black or they're European. Some, some Jews Period. might find it offensive to say that Jews are white. Okay. Jews are European. European. Yep. How are they relegated in America compared to black people? Is Number two, very interesting statistic. Between the 1890s and 1910, there was a statistic, a statistical analysis in this book, The Ethnic Myth, of the percentage of white ethnics that came to the United States with skilled labor skills, meaning that they had trades already before they got here mm. that could say, yo, let's go to work. I know how to, I know to brick, I know how to bricklay. I know how to weld. Textile. Textile. I got, I got the skills, right? The percentage of Polish that came to the United States with skilled labor skills was 6%. The percentage of Italians that came with skills was something like 10, 12%. The percentage of Irish that came with skills was like 13%. The percentage of Jews in that period that came with actual skills before they got here was 67%. Mm. That's a jarring stat right there. So you think it was their magical Jewish culture and going it's, to the synagogue? It had nothing to do with freaking culture. It had to do with the fact that these people had skills before they got here. 
<laughs> well, well, if the black man would only get his culture right, <laughs> Gene, he would ascend to heights this kind of, not this seen. Kind of, this is the kind of retarded, imbecilic garbage you hear from black conservatives, many of whom are black nationalists, because you would know this, like Thomas Sowell, Glenn Lowry, or even your John McWhorter, who wouldn't call himself that, was like, oh, look at the other, how come the Africans, when they come in, look at the Nigerians who come here and they do so well, they're black, they don't face racism. These dumb bastards will tell you that 65 to 70% of Nigerians that come to the United States have more college education than white people. <laughs> But 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 Pascal, we're led to believe that there's just a black pathology, you know. Well, it's listen, just the, the, the black purpose, man can't get his shit together, Pascal. The purpose, the purpose of underclass ideology or cultural pathology, which literally comes out of the University of Chicago School of Social Work and Sociology in the 20th century, early 20th century, is a way to relegate human poverty to failure as opposed to the failures of capitalism. In other mm. words, if you can say it's their culture that makes them poor instead of the fact that you've denied 70% of their men actual equitable labor pay and unionized jobs, then you don't have to worry about addressing the inequities of capitalism. Mm. And that's why one of the biggest crimes of Black America is that Black elites, both liberal and conservative, throughout the post-civil rights era, particularly in the 80s and 90s, used to support underclass ideology and culture mm -hmm. of poverty discourse to further justify policies like mass incarceration to ground poor and working poor black people to powder. Yeah. And you know, the sad part is, man, it's not, it, it's, it's an ideology that isn't hard to transmit. Meaning like the second these Negroes taste a little bit of whiff of that, you know, elite air, it's like, see, them, them niggas back there just didn't know how to act. Look what I did. I got it out the mud. I blah, 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 blah. I'm special. I'm this, I'm that. Like, it, it, it's like a switch that flips. It doesn't even have to be people that come out of the black middle class or the black upper middle class that do no, this oh, shit. No, like, no, 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 no. The worst, the worst. Yeah, are the, the cats know, that got out of the project. Yo, yeah. the, yo, the worst are the ones who came from the bottom. Yeah. Who, who get a little, get a little play play. And they become sick with look at your Clarence Thomas was a poor South, South poor Georgia farm boy. Came from the bottoms. This guy gets a little play, and he's just like, ah, ah these Negroes, this affirmative action stuff doesn't work, even though it helped me get where I am today. We can't have this. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's so funny, too, uh, Pascal, and, and what I thought was interesting about when you guys um, had Brother Corey on and talked about Pascal's, I mean, excuse me, Clarence Thomas's sort of ascent. And you guys talked about, like, by the time he got to some of these elite schools, the elite blacks was, like, looking down on his oh, ass. Man. It was like, you you dark-skinned country bumpkin. You can't be down with us. <laughs> let me tell you something, bro. Let me, let me tell I want to be very, very transparent. Because you always ask me, like, Yo, Pascal, how you know all this stuff as a Haitian? Blah, blah, blah. Like, well, yeah. how do you get interface? And I always love when you ask that question. I was like, let me give you some time and space to explain my 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 travails through this. I grew up in Cambria Heights. Now, you so, know Jamaica, Queens, right? Of course. Now, in the overall socioeconomics of America, Cambria Heights is a working class neighborhood. But sure. if you understand 
the social economics of New York City. It's it's upper. City, it's an upper middle, middle class neighborhood. Yes, there's no there's no question about it. One hundred. Yeah. It's considered like an upper middle class neighborhood. Yes. You know the median income median income in Cambria Heights today is like sixty two thousand dollars. That's mm. not big money. No. But at the time in which my parents and maybe your parents were growing up in the set coming in in the seventies and eighties, yep. you could have you could be a, a subway driver in New York, have a wife who was a teacher, and you have buy a, a crib, nice, a nice upper mm. middle class crib in Cambria Heights. You can send your kids to a nice Catholic school, and you literally can have two kids go to Ivy League universities. Yo, what was it? How common is that narrative from things that we've seen in Jamaica Queens when we came up? Yo, that's what that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I I love that you guys brought up the example of like somebody like Russell Simmons, who grew up in Hollis, which is like as far as distance, Hollis and Cambria Heights are very close together, but sort of socioeconomically, they they're just viewed as very different right. places, even amongst the neighborhoods. But Russell Simmons' parents were professionals. Um, you know what I mean? Like he could pursue this hip hop shit and do what he had to do because, like, bro, I wasn't in the pre, yeah, wasn't in the project. Was a university administrator, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there was no cat growing up in the project. No, man. No. Same thing with LL Cool J, man. Yo, LL Cool J talks about how he got started in hip hop because his grandfather in the early 80s bought him nine thousand dollars worth of DJ equipment. Yo, what 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 black family in the early 80s has nine thousand right. dollars to spend on a grandson to get a right. DJ DJ equipment? Right. A lot of the early vanguards of hip hop. Particularly in Jamaica Queens, yo, these were middle class black kids. I'm sorry yeah. to bust bust people's bubbles. <laughs> 100%. And so you talk about how you found yeah, your this, grounding in all of this. Yeah. So growing up in Cambria Heights, right? We I had black folk in my neighborhood who had gone to college. Some of them went to HBCU. Some went to there was a woman who was on a black who was a teacher. She was a Delta. She was in a black sorority. She went to Howard. We also had working class black folk who were like you know subway drivers. My dad mm -hmm. was a car mechanic. My mom was a registered nurse. We also had doctors. We also mm -hmm. had corporate. We had a man on my block who was an IBM human resources executive. It was a very effective mixture of working class and upper middle class black people who kept a very nice, quality, decent quality of life, who made sure that kids went to decent schools. And the super majority of the black, and it was a black neighborhood, most of the kids in my neighborhood went to college. Most of them went to graduate school. A lot of them are professionals. Mm -hmm. It wasn't no like Sag Harbor, our kind of people, Jack and Jill, 12th generation of, of college educated Negroes. Jack. So so you you're saying I grew up around people who were normal fucking people, yet still made themselves professional, um, college educated, etc. It wasn't of this lineage of quaffed blacks, fancy Negroes. And I think another thing before you go on that's important, Pascal. And as I consume a lot of your work, um, God bless my mom, God rest her soul. Um, like Unwittingly, you're when you're Haitian, you grow up with these notions of class divide 
all the time. Like when you think about like terms like bourgeois, gundam, malere, like these are all class distinctions that you don't realize are class distinctions. But when you're Haitian, it's sort of like imprinted in you that there are these class stratospheres within Haitian society. And you're very always conscious of where you stand in that pecking order, right? Um, so what you're saying about like, bro, like, uh, you know, we all did this shit. We didn't consider ourselves to be magical Negroes for having done so. I find that to be so very interesting, especially considering your, you know, background as a first generation Haitian. Well, this is the thing, though. I'm glad you brought you brought up one of the reasons people always ask, "Why are you so alive to this class thing?" And I tell people, "You just, you just because I'm Haitian." <laughs> It's that simple. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I said, let me make this clear. All right. I come, my family, my Haitian family on both sides are they're not bourgeois, they're not like boulos, they weren't like owners of the means of production, they weren't like these Syrian Arabs who owned like companies, but they were upper middle class. Hey, yo, my mom can trace her family back to the 1700s. I have my mother, my mother had wow. doctors in a family in Haiti in the in the in the 1800s. I have a mom's family tree going back literally to one of her ancestors who studied at the Sorbonne. Now, mm. if you meet my mom, you would think she's a regular, like, church-going, like, working Haitian woman. My mom is a little fair complex, not too light. But the thing is, though, I didn't grow up with this innude sense of, like, oh, you grew up, you were, you're the child of royalty. I was watching cartoons and listening to Run DMC. So it wasn't something that was, like, flowing in my house. I grew up thinking I had like regular, like, you know, middle working class Haitian parents. My father is a dark skinned version of the same thing. You know, my father, you know, I have a deed for my father's family going back signed by Alexander Petion, giving mm. land to one of my father's ancestors who was a general in the Haitian revolution. My father has family going back literally to the era of Dessalines. But what about, yeah, my father was drinking rum and, and vodka, playing dominoes with his buddies. Some of them who like they were like, you know, God knows what. <laughs> in other words, my parents, my parents had also kind of radical politics. My parents were not elitists. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. So even though they came from very prominent, prominent Haitian lineage. They didn't infuse me and my brother with this, like, oh, vous êtes les enfants de bourgeois. Oh, God. I hate the French speaking Haitian so much. (laughs) That wasn't the vibe, right? Mm -hmm. Because actually, the vibe that I got from my mom and dad is they both hated that crap about Haitian people. Mm. You know what I'm saying? You know, my Mm. father's family was very kind of radical. In that, you know, my father had two brothers that were Marxists, that were literally communists, that studied in the Soviet Union. And my mother's family also, my mother was a very, my mother was a union nurse. My mother mm. had very, very kind of egalitarian politics. I love and that. She, she was not, my mother was, even though my mom kind of, you know, all Haitian moms can do the chuli choo choo, you know, <laughs> BS when they have to. But when it comes down to the line, when I talk to my mom about class, she's like, I told, you know, she understands this completely. But at the same time, being around people in my family, particularly my mom's, my mom has a lot of people with that light skin, chewy, chew, chew crap mm-hmm. in her family. Because I told you, my father's family were like gun dawn Haitians. They were the dark skinned black upper middle class. You know what I'm saying? So even though they had status, they were very pro black. Like my father, mm-hmm. you know, my father was one of these like militantly pro-black Haitian dudes. You know what I'm gotcha. saying? You know what I'm saying? But my mom's family, like some of my aunts, uh, oh, they were just like, 
they had the just like nauseating, just like color complex and the, the, the chuli choo choo nonsense that I've always found just like repulsive. Distasteful, yes. Distasteful. So even though this was, I, you know, it was part of my lineage as well, when I'm seeing this and I'm going to functions and I'm hearing people talk, I'm like, yo, what is this like corny bull crap here? This stuff is disgusting. So at a very early, I mean, like before I'm even 10, I'm just cognizant of these like class stratifications that exist in Haitian society. I, I want to transition to something because you briefly touched upon this recently on your show. And I think this is a perfect transition. Can you talk about your introduction to black Greek life at 18, oh, 19 years old? Oh, absolutely. And like how I your history informs that? This, this, part of the reason why, now I just wanted to give you the foundation. Yes. So the foundation comes from your own family class yeah. stratification with the two factions of elites in my own family dark skin elites and light skin elites in my own family right so when i go to college i pledge my freshman year of college right i was now i went to catholic so you know i went to, i went to saint francis prep right yes sir saint francis fellow prep. terry you already know the vibes okay, and i don't know about you wolves but when i was at prep bro Yo, you didn't hear about no slavery, no civil rights, no Malcolm X or Martin Oh, Luther really? It was, bro, when I was at prep, bro, you could ask people who class of 86. We learned nothing wow. about black history. Wow. Nothing. No, so I will say this just as a quick interjection. My first year in prep was 2001, the year of September 11th. That was my first, that was my freshman year. I was in fucking freshman English when the, when the towers dropped. Part of what they sold to my mom when I was in eighth grade, what they were selling to parents was literally diversity. They were like, we got black kids. We got Latin kids. We got Asian kids. We got Jewish kids. We got kids that wear turbans to school. because we both went to the same high school literally yeah. over 20, almost 20 some odd years apart. Yeah. Bro, when I was at St. Francis Prep, man, we were dodging our heads, afraid to get in the fights with these Italian mobs. Oh, my, my God. My brother went to my high school with one of John Gotti's sons. Oh my God! Yo, wow, that's who perpetrated the Howard Beach stuff. Some oh man, my, some of those cats went to my high school. Wow. So when I was when I was in Catholic school, high school at St. Francis in the '80s, son, it was a racial nightmare. Wow, that's incredible. I, and you know, it's so funny. Just because I want to stick to this point, I think the worst thing that ever happened to me racially i say i remember i had a pretty racist guidance counselor who was like trying to get me to transfer because i got like a bad grade on one test like she was pretty like like blatantly like racist or whatever so fuck her whatever i remember one time affirmative action came up <laughs> in one of my classes and a kid that i was like pretty cool with like my man like i sat with him at lunch and i remember he just hated affirmative action and i remember like oh <laughs> clutching my pearls that was yeah. as bad as it got racially okay, let me tell you at that damn that happened school. when i was at st francis prep this is my <laughs> senior year in my french class now if you know anything about st francis prep mm -hmm. All the Haitian kids take French. They don't take Yeah, French. I was one of those Haitian kids, yes. All right, so we're French class my senior year. There's a guy who graduated from my high school. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to bring it out. He's a very big executive in Bad Boy Records. Haitian mm. cat. Most people probably he know went to he prep? He went to prep. He went to St. No! I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> All right? We were in our French class, right? Oh, He was also shit. a football player. So, you know, when you went to prep, you a black guy, you a football player, you the man. Yeah, you yeah, 100%. 
All right. That's, and and that's back when prep was like one of the best, if not the best football program in New York right. City at that Yo, time. We in senior year French class. I'm not going to name the name of the teacher because I don't want to embarrass him. And he asks a question and, you know, all the kids raise their hand. And he asked this particular Haitian brother and the cat uh, kind of messed up the question. And then the, the teacher looks at him, yeah, you freaking spear chucker. In the class. Whoa. So he calls him a spear chucker in class. That's crazy. In class. In front of the whole class. That's crazy. And I'm looking at, yo, man, bro, I was furious. I wanted to attack this back. Yo, let me tell you something, bro. I had, my brother went to prep. I said, let me tell you right now, man. That class, that, that school. You know, he, I told my brother this recently. My brother was like, you got to be joking. Are you serious? I was like, yo, man, that school triggered me, man. Said, That's crazy. He said, yo, man, yo, I hated those motherfuckers at that place, man. Yo, I said, yo, yo, on our show, you asked Jason. I was like, yo, listen, I can't watch The Sopranos to this day. These, these it triggers kids, you because it reminds man, yo, you of the kids you went to high school yeah, with. I'm dead serious. That's I'm amazing. Dead- that is literally the polar opposite of my experience at that school. Like they had, man, they went liberal up. Like they made sure to like make sure everybody understood that like what we do here is acceptance, tolerance. That's what Jesus would want. Blah blah blah. Nah, it was crazy. Bro, it was like, I would tell you one thing is where he started to change. My brother went to prep like four or five years after me, right? And there were more black kids that were there, and they literally they had enough numbers. Well, they used to get into physical brawls mm, with the white wow. ethnic kids, so they could flex like that. They were, you know, they were like ten black kids in my class, bro. That's have, crazy. We, we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't flex like that. My mm. brother was like, "Yo, the reason why I didn't have the experience, we had like enough crew that when these, when these, when these Italian kids, and these Irish kids got crazy, we would flex and we, you know, it, it would be on. <laughs> it was on, it right? Was on, you know, but." So yeah, man. I mean, you gotta remember, I grew up in New York City, bro. I'm like I said, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you. Yeah. Eleanor Bumpers, Yusef Hawkins, Bensonhurst, Crown Heights, yeah. uh, um, Howard, Howard Beach. Beach. Yeah. These are all my high school and college years, bro, in New York mm. City. This gotcha. is what I'm saying. Ed Koch, bro. I want to send you a, a video of Ed Koch when I was when I was in New York. You'll be like, yo, this cat was a racist bastard. Mm. You know. So, you know, I tell, I, I laugh, we laugh about this on my show, and I'm like, yo, man, I have a lot, a lot of hostility towards a lot of groups of people. The ethnic whites of New York City specifically. Yes. Yeah. As a product of coming out of that environment in New York City. Mm-hmm. But to the, to the college thing, right? So because I had that dearth of really exposure to black intellectual history, I knew I was black. I never was a seller. I never wanted to be white because I had a very healthy middle class black neighborhood. I grew up in. I went to Saint Thomas yeah. We had black kids, so I never was ashamed of being black. I had teachers in my neighborhood, so I I was very fortunate to grow up in a very nurturing, healthy black neighborhood and social environment. So it's not like I went to Saint Francis and at high school and felt lost, but I. I wasn't getting any kind of intellectual history of black life mm. in that school at all. Bro, there were two young ladies I know who graduated the year after me. Do you know that St. Francis Prep literally denied them the ability to apply to historically black colleges? They were like, no, we're not, we don't want our kids to go there. Wow. <laughs> 
Wow. That I is say allegedly because I don't want liabilities with this. Right, right. Going. Allegedly. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm dead serious. Yeah, no, I I, I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. But this is how history happens, you know? You know? <laughs> so I go to I go to Hofstra right now. And Hofstra, they had a program, a higher education opportunities program, which is one of those programs that comes out of the civil rights movement where basically these schools start recruiting poor kids from the ghetto to come to college. But the HEAP program at Hofstra was called New Opportunities at Hofstra, the NOAA program. And the NOAA program had a summer program where the kids would come to Hofstra and it would take them to Hofstra and it would give them preparatory, get them prepped to go to college their freshman year. But it was very much infused with like black history, black, you know, black, you know, like mm. this is the 80s. So you get a lot of that like Afrocentric, you know, you know, you know, Dr. Right. Ben, you know, or, or Leonard Jeffries stuff blown in. So when I come to Hofstra as a freshman, I'm hanging out with a lot of the kids in the NOAA program. And everybody, and like because of the era, everyone's talking about black history. People are reading books, autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, mm. you know, the African origins of civilization. And I'm just like eating this up. I'm like, oh, this is dope. I'll take this. I'll take yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not leading, I'm not learning this stuff in class. Don't get it twisted. But the the ambiance in in on the campus. Is really like around this whole kind of like black nationalism, and I used to watch like it is. I used to love like it is with, with Gil Noble, so I was very taken into that kind of like black nationalist kind of vibe. Reading mm. those books, developing as the brothers used to say back in the day, knowledge of knowledge self, of self, of course, five percent right? of nature. Yeah, yeah. And all that, all that good stuff. So I now. The alphas at my school were very dynamic brothers. They're very positive. They're very popular. So I played Alpha Phi Alpha my second semester freshman year. Now, let me tell you about my chapter of alphas. Contrary to the image that you have at like Morehouse or old HBCUs or Ivy or Ivy League schools, where you see the alphas all like you know, like you know, church boys with expensive brother shoes and right. all that stuff. You know, the brothers who were in my chapter, but for the grace of God, they would have been selling crack in the hood. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So these they were good guys. Most of them became very successful, but these were not like bougie, bougie. Like straight up in my chapter, because I grew up in Cambria Heights and literally my parents had a house and a car, I was considered like the rich, a rich kid. Yes, you was an aristocrat. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just because you had a backyard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yo, yo, you come, yo, you know how to drive, son? You have grass? <laughs> you got trees in front of your house? Such yeah, a high yeah. bar to clear, Pascal. Yeah, you know, I had cats in my chapter who literally grew up in the project. You know, I knew guys who pledged me who didn't learn how to drive a car until they were 27 years old. Because mm, they gotcha. never had to. You know what I'm saying? So that's the first time I'm exposed to a diverse class of kids who mm -hmm. are like from the hood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all are in these fraternities and whatnot, but we're, not, we're in these fraternities because the way these organizations are presented to us, they're presented in a way where they're like, they are the embodiment of 20th century black history, the civil rights. You see images of Martin Luther King. You see Thurgood Marshall. You mm. see all, you know, Jesse Jackson is an Omega. You know, you know, Dr. King was an alpha. Thurgood Marshall was an alpha. The boys was an alpha. You know, mm. uh, Percy Sutton was a Kappa. You know, XYZ was a Delta A. So you're sold 
on this kind of image mm. that these Negro, don't forget, I'm coming from a space where I was deprived. Deprived, completely. And I, and I find that to be a, a like, I remember the first time I talked to somebody who went to a historically black college and I explained to them, they're like, yeah, I just, you know, I went to Penn State because like, you know, it was like a big school and it was and it was going away or whatever. It was like something to do. And, and they were like, because they grew up in like really white ass environment their whole life, they felt it was an imperative to go to a historically black college. Whereas me, I was like, I've been black my whole life. I don't, you know, like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to feel like that. I've never, I don't understand that feeling is foreign to me because you know, I only grew up around black people. Matter of fact, I only grew up around West Indian people until high school. Right. You know, like I didn't have a white classmate until high school. Me you too. know, um, and so it's just different feelings. But so I understand the perspective that you take as a young man going to Hofstra for the first time. And these people presenting to you like this is what this organization is about. This is this organization's lineage and history. Right. So it's a very compelling, compelling thing. And when I, I'm not going to lie, bro. When I was in college, when I said I did the frat thing, I did the frat thing big. I, you go on my frat, son, I can send you pictures of when I was in college. He was like, yo, Pascal looked like Dean Big Brother Almighty from school days out here, man. Yeah, I needed. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I was very into the scene. It was fun. It was live. It was very enjoyable. I also learned things like, you know, parliamentary procedure, how to organize a meeting. I met I met uh, Charlie Rangel at 19 years old. Wow. I met the man who founded the United Negro College Fund at 18 years old. I met men who were like literally like pillars of black history as a teenager. Right. I would go to conventions and I'm I'm yucking it up with guys who were like first who were like black mayors of cities. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. you're socialized into these spaces where, like literally as a teenager, you are interfacing with the black political class. You know what I'm saying? So you see these guys, and they're not like mystical, magical people. They're, they're literally casually like, hi, your brother, you want some scotch? Come here, sir. Come here, let's have a drink. You know what I'm saying? What's going on, man? How the ladies treating you? You know, yeah. so it's it's really a very impressive like, like feeling for particularly a kid who's coming from a Caribbean background, who goes to a high school and has like no connection to black history, where yep. he's like, now I'm literally physically hanging out with black history in the yes. hotel, drinking scotch, telling stories. Yes. Nice. You, you follow what I'm saying? I'm following it perfectly, yes. You know what I'm saying? So I was very enthralled, but again, this is a narrative of black history. <laughs> That's important. That's an important a distinction. Narrative. Did you get it? So, as I told you, Hofstra is kind of like you got a lot of working class blacks. So you're not really interfacing with the the Bush, 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 Jack and Jill. Oh, my father was actually in the Alpha History book. You know, type Negroes, right? Mm -hmm. That all of that changes for me when I go to law school at Boston University. Okay. Because when I'm at BU, that's when I'm interfacing with Negroes who are like fifth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation HBCU, you know, Afro-Saxons, Black mm -hmm. Brahmins. Because, you know, I'm, you know, me and my boys, I had a crew of my frat brothers. We used to hang out in Boston. We used to go to parties at Harvard. We used to deal with women, date women from you know, all the different schools in the area. So we're interfacing with a lot of Blacks 
who are not just like us who come from like middle class or working class background, but who are literally like our kind of people who are literally like Jack and Jill, boule type kids. Black aristocracy. Black essentially. aristocracy, right? And yo, and I'm you know, I'm meeting these folks, and I'm not, no, I'm not impressed. I'm not flexed. I'm like, number one, I'm from New York. Half y'all Negroes is from the country, yeah, so relax. Like, <laughs> so you know how back in the day cats from New York flex, yeah. Any kind wow. of campus, she was like, son, I'm from the city. I don't care where you're from, you know. Who you are, I'm from the city. That was a very big the New York kids were always known to be very arrogant, very just, just like impressed, self-impressed, so on and so forth. But you know, and, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I interacted. I dated women from that class, and it was really interesting to learn about the accoutrement of these people, their value system, how they mm. viewed the world, mm. dealing with black people who had houses on Martha's Vineyard, and what, and my contempt from them was not because I was jealous. Because like, yo, I know my family background. These Negroes, some of them would have been peasants in my parents' house in Haiti. I don't give a shit about these, these, these folks. They ain't not impressing me. But the contempt I had for them is the same contempt I had for what I saw as a kid in my Haitian house mm. dealing with some of the people in my, my mom's family who had that same... Like, I saw an immediate parallel. You know what I'm saying? Like, I could see it. I was like, yo, these are the same people who were in my family. These are the, I was like, yeah, these are the same. it's the same bullshit. Like it was, it was tangibly recognized. I remember one time I knew a woman who uh, who was from one of these prominent families, and she was like, you know, like fourth generation, five generation college educated. You know, she was in the sorority, and you know, sometimes depending, and I was very much into my my Haitian identity back then. Right now, so sometimes you never know how someone's gonna react to that. And she's like, "Oh, you're Haitian?" I was like, "Yeah." She starts talking to me in French. And I was like, responding. I was like. Yeah, how do you speak French? And she was like, My family is from Louisiana. We know we have Haitian parents, and blah blah blah. And she's like all like all like ebullient and bubbly, like a bottle of champagne. And I was like, which and we gotta be we gotta be clear right now. This is in the time, this is in the era where Haitians are literally getting beat up in the streets just for the fact of being Haitian. That we're getting blamed for the AIDS crisis. Right, where doctors are treating Haitian patients differently because there's this belief that Haitians brought AIDS to the world. And so that's kind of a crazy story to hear, you know, in the backdrop of that history in this country, you know? Right, right. And I was just like, oh, you know, she, and she was cool. She was very nice. But I was just like, wow, she's like really into this. Like, fr-. so I'm hearing her talk French. I was like, this sounds like people in my, in my family who are into the, the chuli choo choo, you know, nonsense. So <laughs> really, that's when I really start to organically connect, and I'm seeing a different side of my 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 own fraternity, right? Mm. Because it's not like my boy, you know, you know, Jack, who was literally in Brooklyn and Brownsville dodging bullets, who's my frat brother. Now it's a cat whose father literally owns like the black bank in Chicago, who was like a wow. sixth generation alpha. Who I'm like, yeah, he's frat, but this nigga's corny as hell. I was like, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really feeling this dude. You know what I'm saying? You know, I'm, not, I'm really not feeling this cat at all. So I'm interacting with these cats at a different level, and I'm like, wow, okay. I'm so seeing that definitely set it off. What really, really kind of to be transparent took me to a deeper, deeper understanding is after I graduated law school, my last year of law school, I actually converted to Islam. I don't know if I told you that, right? 
And what happens is that I can, I'm not a nation of Islam, like Orthodox Islam. Yeah, like actual Islam. Yeah. 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 So um, I uh, I moved to South Florida. I take the bar. I practice law. And the thing about the Orthodox Muslim community in the United States is that many of the black men, to be transparent, that you want to interact with, there's a lot of brothers coming out of prison. Yeah. Except the dean, except Islam in prison. So I go from hanging out with black men who literally are looking to get jobs with Fortune 500 companies or be executives or own their own business in the 90s to the early millennium. I'm dealing with cats who are 35 years old, who are Muslims now, who wants to start an incense business, who spent 15 years in prison. Mm. So immediately, like my 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 whole view of black the world life, view has shifted. My whole view of black life is just altered, right? And like I'm listening, like, don't forget, I'm a middle class kid from Queens. I went to college, I went to law school. Yeah, when I was in college, I had some of my frat brothers who was like from the hood, but I wasn't like in, I wasn't going into their neighborhood and chilling with them every day, seeing them dodge bullets in the ghetto. Because we were all doing the upper middle class aspirant college boy thing, right? Yeah. So I'm dealing with the Muslim community, and I'm like, yo, I'm, I'm seeing cats literally come out the slam trying to get their lives together. I'm talking about black men, some black women who are coming out of the bottom of society. And by then, I, I have enough understanding of black politics to understand how black elites alienate these people with the politics that they support. Mm. And it really starts to sharpen my class kind of warfare type Consciousness. of yeah. yeah. Because what, what I find, quite honestly, is that a lot of these dudes who are Muslims, obviously, because Islam kind of did, you know, they had a lot better character. They were more upstanding. They were more they were like better <laughs> human beings. They're a lot of the cats that I was hanging out with in college and law school. You know, saying these dudes were trying to be good family men. They weren't cheating on their wives, or at least they weren't trying. I'm not trying to romanticize them to make them think they were all perfect. Don't forget these, which is what human beings say. But what I'm saying is that, like, the effort that these these men were making to really compare to where they were coming from and the mm. little they had in terms of material resources to be upstanding human beings was very impressive to me. And the fact that many of them suffered from not being the beneficiaries of policy mm. that lifted a lot of men like myself up until the upper middle class who on the backs of their suffering mm. made it become very alive to class contradictions. That is so black, real. Amongst black people. That's amazing. And, you know, man, that's that's just an incredible journey you just took us through. But I do want to get you out of here on this, and it's specifically related to the black political class um, and their collaborative nature with the ruling class, right? With, you know, quite frankly, the powers of capital. Like, they're just the fucking figureheads who... Whenever, especially on the fucking liberal side, whenever they want to be like, we got y'all Negroes, look, <laughs> Barack Obama, well, look. The, the black, listen, man, you know, there's a book I'm reading right now called Double Trouble. It's about black mayors in the United States in the post-civil rights era. 
The Democrat Party in the 1980s literally made a strategic analysis and realized that they did not have to offer black people any kind of policies as long as they gave them symbolic appointments and candidates to govern. Because Mm -hmm. black people were so divorced from caring about policy that symbolism and status and the first black this and the first black that would be enough to impress them. They're still they're still drunk off of that elixir, by the way, which is just craziness. But please continue, my brother. Yes. Yeah, so what we see, and as I was saying on uh, Brother Ben Dixon's show, is that the black political class goes through phases in the post-civil rights era. The first phase, because they came out of the 60s movement and they got their political uh, iron sharpened working in great society programs, because there were still some remnants of black movement activity in the 70s, they had to at least create the illusion or charade of redistributive policy toward the black poor and working class, even though largely it was the black middle class that benefited. So they at least in the 70s, the black political class tried to seem like they cared about poor and working class black people. And it's also people got to remember when Dr. King died, like the last shit, he, he had sort of transitioned to like, this shit is about jobs and the black poor and kind of like nothing else. Right. So they if they was going to claim that fucking tradition, you know, just intellectually to have some type of integrity or honesty, you had to at least pay lip service to the man and the movement's legacy. Right. Right. Exactly. So what happens is that in the 80s, with the rise of neoliberalism, which is a fancy word for privatization, hypercapitalization, cutting government, the market will fix everything. Right. All that stuff. The black political class reflects the nature of capitalism in America. Black folk have to understand that. Mm. And as a result, the mayors and the, and, and the political administrators in the black political class at that time, and the black political class is not just elected officials. It's the ideological superstructure, civil rights organizations, black church, HBCUs, mm-hmm. membership mm. organizations, that all create the, the ideological ventriloquist mechanism of taking black voters and supporting generally the Democratic Party. You know what? I I, I have to stop you because I think you just brought up an important point. Um, when you when you because t- this is something I've been talking about a lot recently. When you talk about something like you know, I was juxtaposing something like Occupy or even something like even bigger than that, Black Lives Matter, where it's not tethered to any tangible institution. It's just shit out in the ether that people want to put, you know, signposts in their front yard or black pictures on their social media profile pages or whatever, but it's not tethered to anything. But the elite black political structure is tethered to a bunch of institutions. You just named a few HBCUs, churches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That like when you have an institution, it's easier to organize these movements and these thought processes and these ideologies when it's tethered to something tangible. I think that's important for people to understand. Absolutely, absolutely. So basically the black political class in the 80s, they shift to austerity. They're not going to give you policy. Mass incarceration is kicking in. Surplus black labor is redundant, is reduced to poverty. And unfortunately, they're supporting mass incarceration policy as well as urban pro-growth policy that makes more money for downtown and big business. And that's how we get the urban regimes of the 80s where we have David Dinkins, Harold Washington. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Tom Bradley in LA. We got, you know, uh, uh, Andy Young in, 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 in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, yo, there was a black man in almost every city in America. Right. So 
That's that change. When the Democratic Party embraces the agenda of the Democratic Leadership Conference in the, in the mid to late 80s and shifts to a pro-corporate agenda, anti-crime, anti-poor and working class people, gut welfare, they basically double down on the Republican politics and do it even worse. That's even more harmful, NAFTA, GATT, more harmful to working class and poor black people. But again, the black political class, because they don't want to deal with Newt Gingrich and the Republicans, they support that agenda and they embrace it. And they actually double down on that neoliberalism and they become ventriloquists for that politics in blackface, unfortunately, and they carry on that politics. What happens is that in the 21st century with the millennium, there is the third pivot of the black political class with the truly liberal, new, neoliberal black politicians. There was a basically, as Bruce Dixon and Glenn Ford would tell me, a trial balloon of the individuals who be considered the first black president. It was Cory Booker, Barack Obama, Arthur Davis, Adrian Fenty, and Harold Ford Jr. Harold Ford Jr. was the first whiff of just like, well, I was just like, something don't smell right with this brother. Like, it just immediately, I was like, nah, I don't like what he's pushing with this. I'm black, but I'm really the most corporatist motherfucker. Like, he just... He just felt all wrong, that Harold Ford brother. <laughs> all of them were very pro-corporate charter school. All of them were very pro-capitalist, very backed by finance capitalism and Wall Street. All of them had very high, hard, hardcore respectability, pull up your bootstraps. And your and, and most of them came from Harvard, Yale, Ivy Princeton, League, your League, usual Oprah, suspects. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, um, uh, what's, his, uh, what's my name? Uh, Michael Nutter was a Philadelphia manifestation of that horrible politics. And... What we see with Obama is that it ends up being bankrupt for black people. They lose thirty-five percent of the wealth with no recourse, and you know, you know, Black Lives Matter police shootings and all kinds of stuff. And black people become disaffected with that politics. And what I was telling about Ben Dixon is that Eric Adams is the fourth iteration of the black political class, where he's trying to pivot between the neoliberal Obama Fenty Booker model and the AOC. Sanders model that rises in 2016 while still maintaining that allegiance to that corporate force of Wall Street real estate development while sign, you know, I you know, I'm a vegan and I, you know, I'm down with a formal affordable oh, housing man. and playing that game. So we're still stuck in that very shallow black political class, but unfortunately, because black people have not really embraced a class politics, we're still being enthralled with symbolism and black faces in high spaces. Man, um, and it it, it it rears its ugly head in so many different forms, right? Like, when I see Negroes repost a deal that Jay-Z just did for however many millions and tens of millions of dollars, that will enrich him and his family and nobody else. I Like, it, it, it literally kills me inside, Pascal, when I see shit like this. Um, Just this embrace of just, like... If you if you just embrace a culture of arch capitalism as a black person, that will be your salvation. And the only people that you should want to align yourself with are the most revanchist, greediest black people in the world. And this idea that the salvation of black people, and I bring this up on the show all the time, is if we only just had like four more Jay-Z, Puff Daddies, and Oprahs, black people would be saved. Well, the thing is so sad is that a lot of these kids who, who signed on, these young millennials, most of these kids who don't know, most black people don't know, they don't know black political history. You know, black capitalism was tried profoundly in the, in the, in the 70s by uh, Richard Nixon. They flushed millions of dollars with minority set-aside programs. That didn't do jack for the majority of the black poor and working class because American capitalism requires black people 
poor and working class black people to be disproportionately relegated to surplus labor and poverty and mass incarceration and family dis dislocation. To break it down for you rather crassly, crassly, capitalism needs a nigga so that poor white folk know that they don't have to be one. Facts <laughs> and facts. And, you know, again, a lot of the a lot of the sort of racial essentialism of elite black political thought um, it's it serves like two purposes. One, my favorite shit about it is 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 is, is not the first time I'm making this point. My first shit about it is one, it pacifies a lot of black people into thinking like this is it, right? Like you know, the next black president is gonna be it. This is gonna be the magic bullet. This is gonna be the shit that that does it when we know like materially none of your shit is gonna change. It's gonna stay the same so long as they're embracing the exact same policies as literally Ronald fucking Reagan and Richard Richard Nixon. And two, it serves as a shiny reminder to poor white people. You see, the niggas done pass you by. You know, it, it has that double edge to it where it pisses off the fucking, you know, poor white people and does dick off for black people. And so that's why I myself has be, have become disillusioned with the politics of equity and, and, and representation well, I mean, and all of that shit. Funny is, right? Listen, right? People always say, like, oh, so you don't, you don't think black people should have corporate jobs? I was like, yo, I don't believe that anyone <laughs> should be discriminated against their jobs. But yeah. understand something, and this is why... When we had Cedric Johnson on our show yesterday. You should watch that show. It's a great show. I'm going we're talking to. about diversity, equity, inclusion, and the notion that what the aspiration of black people is equality in American society. And the average black folk, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with having equality in America? Because so, these folks have no actual critique of capitalism. You don't understand that capitalism requires that the <laughs> pie gets smaller and the people who can't eat gets larger. So the <laughs> ultimate end of diversity, equity, inclusion is that you have a pie with 13% are black, 60% are white, 18% are Latino, and nobody else eats. And everything That's is fine because we have diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes, that, that, that my problem with diversity, equity, and inclusion is that... There's no redistribution, bro. 100%. And it's also just what it, what it states is that the underlying equality, inequality is fine. It's just not equitable enough. Yeah, it's right. like it doesn't make any you know what, fucking you know sense. That the, the, the liberal liberal equality means that as long as the ruling class is proportionally matched racially to everything yeah. else. In other words, as long as the one percent is thirteen percent black, eighteen yeah. percent Latino, and sixty percent white, and all of the misery is proportionally spread, everything's okay. It's it's perfectly fine. <laughs> As listen, as long as you know, uh, Biden's next like fucking military post is some black dude, right? <laughs> Who literally was like on the board of Raytheon or some crazy shit like that. But he's the first black guy in that fucking post. It's greatness, isn't it, hey, Pascal? That's, that's the epitome of of neoliberal uh, equity. Yeah, it's. It's really crazy. And, you know, last but not least, man, I, <laughs> you had a nice little show about the concept of a class warfare. Oh, yeah, man. And, <laughs> and a couple of things that I found to be very interesting was, one, 
you could sit you you considered yourself to be a class trader like obviously you're you know, <laughs> you know you're a lawyer you're you're firmly entrenched within the professional class but you understand the underlying inequality of it all but for me it's like you know it's so funny i listened to that basically after spending a weekend with a bunch of the black elite like people that I know personally that I grew up with. And I'm just like, man, like when the revolution comes, do I have to disavow these people? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, the first step, right? The first step is you give them political education and be like, yo, these are the, you know, this is the reality. And if they reject it, which many of them will, then you realize that they're class enemies of the people that you, you first thing you got to do is you got to ask yourself, do you want to be a class trader? Do you want to be a, a, do you want to be you want to commit what Emilcar Cabral, the great uh, Guinea Bissauans uh, revolutionary, suggested? Do you want to commit class suicide and mm -hmm. identify yourself with the masses of black people who are basically getting ground to dust? I'm not saying you got to live in misery, but what I'm saying is that ideologically realize that the system is working against them and shun all of this kind of petite bourgeois, aspirationalist, avarist nonsense, cons you know, hyper consumeristic bullcrap. And basically realize that your raison d'etre, your reason for being, is to challenge the system to bring some dis redistribution of resources and control of means of production to those communities that have been marginalized and economically exploited. If you make that choice, then you realize that, yeah, some of these cats might have to get the mile mile. So be it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's just so beautifully and perfectly said. Pascal Robert, catch him on This Is Revolutionary. This is this Revolution. Is revolution this is Revolution Podcast. Of course, the Black Agenda Report. He's in our post Newsweek. He's all over the place, man. Thank you once again for coming on the show. Tell the people where they can find you, though, on these socials. Twitter, at P-R-O-B-E-R-T-06, at P-Robert-206. Uh, uh, Google my name. You can see my writings at Black Agenda Report. You'll see it at Newsweek. Uh, I'm on social media. I, I'm Huffington Post. I got a long, over 10 years of writing about black politics. Uh, Allhiphop.com, I got some articles there, too. I'm American Spectator, and, you know, check my stuff out. Hey, man, Mon Compare, I'm really appreciative of this, man. Thank you for this. Of course, can't wait to talk to you again. Uh, we got to have you on the show, man. We got to talk about sports. Listen, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for the call, man. I'm ready. I'm ready whenever you guys Always need me. to be here with you, brother. It's a pleasure to be for hometown homeboy, high school, high school, Bro, fellow, fellow terrier. The, the whole parallels day. are crazy. Queens Village, Cambria Heights, St. Joachim, and then St. Francis Prep. It's, it's ridiculous, the parallels, my boy. All right, man. All right. So make sure you guys check out all of the other Count the Dings offerings, the Friday Mailbag, Cinephobe, Packing Eyes with Haberstraw and Arnavitz, everything that we got. Become a Patreon at patreon.com backslash Count the Dings. We're out of here. Peace. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.